You're talking to the Rolex wearing, diamond ring wearing, kiss stealing, woo, wheeling dealing, limousine riding, jet flying, son of a gun. Woo. This must be it for Ronan O'Gara. Drop it, goal. Grand slam at stake. He's got it. Yes. The nation holds its breath. Yes, we're there. Hello everybody and welcome along to WTS126. My name is Danny Murray. My name is Graham Merrigan. How are you? Tremendous man, how are you? Good, yeah, feel good. Loving life, loving life. Um, are you sure you're feeling good? Yeah. Have you not just had something removed? <laughs> <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. <laughs> oh man, um, as this goes out, Meryl may or may not have finally got his Mickey transplant. Depends on uh, on how our health system. Yeah. Yeah. So pre- we, I ha- yeah, previous yeah. chapters episodes, I have said that I'm waiting for a, the keyhole surgery to get rid yeah. of the kidney stone. So I'm scheduled to go in at a date. Mm. This is the fifth date they've been given me. Yeah. Currently we are four to f- four or five days away. Yeah. So there's still potential for that to be cancelled. Yeah. So uh, before uh, before it is cancelled or before he is brought in to go under the knife, I've decided to treat him to a podcast here in the fabulous and famous Fitzpatrick <laughs> Castle Hotel. Yeah. <laughs> Mainly because we had to pre-record it just in case. Just in case. Um, but it works out well and it's a great guest for you. But before we talk to our guest, we need to say, if you want to treat a loved one this Christmas, why not go to FitzpatrickCastle.com and treat you and them. A present for you and a present for them. That's a winner, isn't it? Yeah. And the new restaurant here exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Mappas. Mappas restaurant. Delish. Mm. So check out FitzpatrickCastle.com for all their latest offers. Mero. Danny. From your hospital bed, bud, who have we got in the podcast this week? We have broadcaster and journalist from the lovely Metropolis County Cork. He's a Cork boy. Joe O'Shea. All right. Our guest this week is broadcaster and journalist joining us from Cork via the magic of Skype. Joe O'Shea, thanks man for joining us this evening. No problem, glad to be here. Um, yeah, look, I suppose the world is a bit of a mad place at the moment. And uh, I've seen kind of on Twitter there over the last couple of days, I've seen you tweeting a bit about Brexit and that kind of thing. And like... I, I don't know, are, are we all kind of losing it a little bit in the hysteria of all that's going on, or do we have a right to go a little bit mad at the moment? Well, we definitely have a right to go a little bit mad, because <clears throat> there's a lot of crazy stuff happening. I was living in a lot of money, just recently returned from London, I was there for four years, and uh, I'm a bit obsessed with Brexit, because I lived there and I lived through it, and I actually voted in Brexit, oh, uh, okay. voted Remain. Uh, maybe not, not a lot of Irish people realised it or know it, but... Uh, there's 400,000 Irish citizens in the UK, um, and we all could vote in the uh, referendum. How come, Joe? Uh, sorry? How come? Well, it, it was us, Cyprus and Malta. Um, citizens of Cyprus, Malta and Ireland could vote, because we're still classed as ex-Commonwealth. Oh. So we, we, have, we had voting rights. So 
the street I lived on and the people I worked with, there were people from France, Germany, Spain, you know, you name it. They couldn't vote in a referendum that was, you know, and some of them had been living there for 10, 15, 20 years. They couldn't vote in the referendum, but the Irish could. And, and the Irish um, did seem to turn out in huge numbers. The interesting thing about the Irish vote was it was split very cleanly down generational lines. It seemed to be that the, the, the Irish who went there in the 70s, the 60s, 70s, and maybe the 80s were, seemed to be very strong leave. Um, now, there's a lot of explanations for as to why that is. Uh, partly, well, I, the sense that I got out of it was that they felt, and you talked to them, and I used to meet them because the best, we lived just across the road from the best Irish bar in South London. The Blyde Hill Tavern, very famous place. And I meet a lot of Irish in there of all generations. And the older guys would always say, there's too many immigrants in the country. Which ah. always struck me as a bit ironic. Yeah. <laughs> but they, the, the way they saw it, they were older people. They were going to the, you know, using the NHS, going to the doctors. And they were seeing a lot of people from outside of Europe. And they didn't like it when they felt that there was too many of them around, you know. Um, and they wanted the UK to leave. I think in kind of some kind of respects, they wanted to go back to the 70s and 80s where it was just the Irish, you know, were really the main immigrants in, in and maybe, you know, from Asia, from Asia, from India and Pakistan. But that was it. And I think they didn't like seeing so many different or they couldn't get used to it. I don't think it was racism, really. I think it was more... They, they found London had changed, changed so fast. And the, the, the neighborhoods they lived in had transformed. And I think they were feeling a bit bewildered and they wanted to go back in time. And I think the whole Brexit thing for a lot of voters in England, in the UK, was about going back in time, going back to this kind of past that they imagined as more secure. England, uh, the UK, Britain was stronger, you know, had an empire, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. You, you um, go back to a bit of the kind of nationalism and imperialism, though. Bit yeah, it, jingoism, it, really. Yeah, it, it is. It's a form of nationalism, but it's more of a cultural nationalism. Um, it's more of a sense of we are. It's not like it used to be. And if you live in London, and I did for four years, and that was my second time around. I was there in the early nineties as well. It's a bewildering city. Um, it's a city of huge, huge gaps between rich and poor, the people who are doing really well and the people who aren't. The area we lived in was in southeast London, uh, near Dulwich, East Dulwich, um, Lewisham, uh, Brixton, Peckham, which traditionally would have been very strongly Irish, very strongly working class, very strongly um, deprived in a lot of respects. It was changing every day. Money was coming in, gentrification. The, the amount of the pace of change there was bewildering. And I think for people around that I was talking to and I knew in London, the older generation couldn't really handle that. Now, on the other hand, you had this huge influx of new Irish. I used to call them the new London Irish. And I wrote about this for the Irish Independent. There were people, young, mostly young, mostly well-educated, mostly high achievers or at least ambitious or hard workers who left after the crash or in the years after the crash. Like Ireland had the highest rate of emigration in the OECD. And a lot of them ended up in London, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And they were very, very strongly pro-European. So they were very strongly remaining. So you had this mad generational breakdown, which I saw in the Irish book, where you had the older guys who were like, no, 
we should leave the EU. And the younger guys were like, no, you know, I want to be able to travel, I want to be able to be part of the single market, all that kind of stuff. So it was fascinating to me, and I remain fascinated by it. And I'm probably, I probably tweet too much about it, I probably think too much about it, but if Brexit is the single maddest political event on this side of the Atlantic in my lifetime. So I can't but be fascinated by it. But it's, a, it's, it's an even, it's, I'm fascinated by the, the disaster of it. I'm yeah, gonna, well, I mean, they're cutting themselves off from the, the world's biggest single market, half a billion people. Um, for England, if you believe, for the UK, and I keep saying England because, of course, the Scots wanted to stay, Northern Ireland wanted to stay, the Welsh seemed just a bit confused by the whole thing. <laughs> um, it's, it seems to be, like, every economist of note, uh, you know, who's non-political or, or is trying to look at it from a logical point of view, it's, this is, at best, a massive leap into the dark, and at worst, a huge... Uh, a huge, a huge uh, thing of self-inflicted harm, you know. Mm. Um, it's do, sorry, go on. So I was just going to say, like, do you think then that the, the whole so what you're saying about like this massive leap into the dark at best, that is self-inflicted harm that there, you know, and then the whole narrative in the the election then of you know, uh, no deal is better than a bad deal, and when you're staring down the barrel now of no deal being a real real possibility which then that leap into the dark becomes an even bigger leap yeah well uh, you see it's it seems to have been hijacked by the really really hard right libertarian pro-business uh, like uh, ultra capitalistic thinking guys you have guys like dyson you know who's fascinating um the, the great inventor you know people by his uh his uh, Hoover's um, or his vacuum cleaners. I've one of them at home and I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he's a fascinating character. He was very, very strong leave and that was important because he's seen as a business genius. But the thing about Dyson is he wants deregulation of the workplace. He wants to be able to move his businesses and he's planning to move one of his manufacturing businesses to Singapore or to, to outside of the UK. Like, there are these people who want to do away with what they call red tape, which is what everybody else would call regulation, workplace protection, unions, you know, all of these things. They want to Uberize the UK. Mm. They want to have a low-wage, low-security economy where they can make vast, vast, vast amounts of money. And a hard Brexit is not going to affect Dyson, it's not going to affect the boss of Weatherspoons, who is also in the same camp, leave, deregulate, all that kind of stuff. It's not going to affect them because they are billionaires already. But it's going to really, really hit, according to anybody who's looked at this clearly, anybody with expertise. It's going to hit the middle classes, the working classes. It's going to affect job security. It's going to make life a lot harder for a lot of people in the UK. And it's that message doesn't seem to have got through to the kind of the flag waving, you know, we we can be great again kind of Brexiteers that yeah. are, you know, still very strong and very vocal. When will we see signs of everything kind of falling apart for them? Well, I mean, it depends on how you quantify falling apart. We saw this week uh, the European medical agencies and the banking agencies moved out of London. Um, 
Now, the, one of them, the banking agency was supposed to come to Dublin, which would have been, given our history of banking regulation, would have been a cosmic fire in the altogether. It's like uh, putting a, an arsonist in charge of, uh, of fire security. <laughs> it's like a Waterford Whisperer, bloody twee. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, it's crazy stuff. But, you know, so, and Michael Barnier was saying today that, um, th- that he's, he said the the banks in London, and London is a banking capital of the world, they're going to use, lose their European passports, which means they won't be able to do business, based, because they're based in London, they won't be able to do business in the EU. Swiss Bank is headquartered in, for instance, is headquartered in London, Canary Wharf, because they couldn't operate from Switzerland into the EU, because Switzerland's deal with the EU doesn't include this financial passporting arrangement. Yeah. So now they're going to go. So you're going to see London is like, London fascinated me. London's like a steam train that runs on money. You know, you, the way you used to see a guy shoveling people into the, into the firebox of a steam train. Like there's, London is a steam train where people are constantly shoving, shoveling vast amount of money into the burner. Once that money is no longer there or moves elsewhere, the steam train will slow down. And is this kind of... Like you were saying that it, kind of the older generation that are seeing to be this kind of longing for, you know, going back to the way things were in the 60s, the 70s and into the, like the 80s. When, uh, now I could be wrong on this, but I mean, my understanding would be that like that situation there of the shoveling money and the financial uh, clout that London had, it wouldn't have been as as money driven. It would have been driven through other kind of industries, which in modern times don't necessarily have that clout. So it's not as if they can claw that back, is it? No, they, I mean, they, Thatcher destroyed the manufacturing base in, 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 in the UK, the mining base, the heavy in, industry, the, you know, the industrial base. Uh, they're not, that's not coming back. Just as Trump is not bringing back coal mining and steel making to the mm. Rust Belt in the, U, in the UK and the US, nobody's bringing back coal mining and heavy industry to the UK. So... It, it, it's 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 an illusion or a delusion for a lot of people, and it the the leave vote I think was also a lot of anger because people wanted to lash out because if you're living outside of London and I've travelled outside of London, it gets London's a city state. It's like a it's like a medi, it's like a, a Renaissance city state in, in 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 Italy. If you're inside the walls and you have a good trade or you know if you have money, it's fantastic. If you're outside the walls. You know, you're scratching a living, and you're probably getting the plague every three weeks. You know, yeah, yeah. It's, there are vast, vast swathes of the north of England, and not, and not even just the north, but you know, Cornwall is one of the most deprived regions in the UK or in Europe, and Cornwall depends massively on EU subsidies. And yeah. Cornwall voted seventy percent leave. Jesus! Wow. One of the. I was watching one night with my wife. I was watching the BBC News, and they were interviewing in the room in an old mining village in Wales. And they were talking to people in a, uh, a newly opened uh, kind of community center, swimming pool, kind of you know, gym for the kids, all that kind of stuff. And they had them stood in front of a massive great bloody sign that said, the, whatever the name of the village was, Aberystwyth or whatever, the Aberystwyth Community Resource Center funded by the European Union, structural funds, right? <laughs> so you have all these people standing in front of this big sign and the BBC... The uh, reporter says, how are you going to vote? Oh, we're voting leave. 
And he said, why? He said, well, the EU hasn't done anything for us. <laughs> <laughs> As their kids are diving into the EU-funded swimming pool. Right? Jesus. <laughs> it's it's like... that, that's a disconnect that you're dealing with, you know? And it's the same, it's Brexit and Trump, yeah, there's, they're the same kind of phenomenon. Oh, had, but but like Boris Johnson, Boris Johnson would have kind of, if that person at the telly was like, "God, oh, what has Europe ever done for us?" Boris Johnson was probably supporting that kind of claim as well. He was, he was, because he thought, according to the conventional wisdom, this is what people, you know, the best reading of Boris Johnson's mad shenanigans. <laughs> Boris Johnson thought, "I'll throw myself behind the Leave campaign. It's not going to win, but in the inevitable Tory bloodbath that happens afterwards." I become prime minister. You know, Boris Johnson was on the fence like three months, two months before the, the final vote. Nobody knew which way he was going to jump. He, he probably didn't know. He was trying to make a very careful calculation based on the most important factor in Boris Johnson's life, which is Boris Johnson. <laughs> so he was thinking, right, there's no way. Like, you know, ev the polls got it wrong, of course. Look. People said, there's no way we're going to leave the EU. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So they're all making these mad political calculations. I mean, David Cameron probably only called the in-out referendum to block off the nutters in his own party, John Redwoods and people like that, and to, and to, put, and to stop UKIP because UKIP were making serious inroads into conservative uh, voting. Mm. Uh, we're taking voters away from them. So David Cameron thought, we'll have a referendum, we'll settle the question for once and for all, we'll take the steam, uh, the wind out of the UKIP sales, we'll take the wind out of the Tory rebel Nutter Alliance sales, and we'll sail on, and I'll be able to, you know, continue to be Prime Minister in the EU, and, you know, everything will be fine. A uh, big gamble, and we all know what happened. Yeah. At what point, though, does, I mean, like, when I when I look at Boris Johnson and one of the, the best things I've ever seen involving Boris Johnson was uh, there was, <laughs> I can't remember what, what Mashable or one of them might have done it, but it was, like, 15 orangutans that looked like Boris Johnson. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. It's, like, it's hilarious. Genuinely, just Google it if you haven't seen it. It's brilliant. There's one where there's an orangutan go-karting and Boris Johnson go-karting, and it's just... <laughs> but, like, he... Not quite on the same level, or, or I know that they're, they're very different, but when, when I listen to him or when I see some of the things that he does, I can't help but think of somebody like the Healy Rays, where you're kind of thinking, how do these people actually get to this position that they're in? I mean, like, I can't remember, where, where was it? Was he, uh, he was somewhere recently, and he, he was reading Kippinger at, like, the most inappropriate time, or he was reciting Kippinger. Was it, was it Burma he was in? Yeah, he was in Burma. Yeah, yeah. And, he, um, and like, Jesus. And you're kind of sitting there and you're like, I don't think Boris understands or he gets it. He like, just doesn't you know? get life. He probably gets it, but it's it's a very, like, Boris is a product of Eton and the, you know, the, the age-old British elite upper classes. Mm. He probably gets it, he just doesn't care. You know, yeah. he doesn't care. Because, Which is worse. Yeah, because he's got that sense of entitlement, that sense of, you know, that lingering sense of we rule the world, and they did. It was the biggest empire, and we were part of it. <laughs> it was the biggest empire the world has ever known. Mm. And he's the product of that class, the last lingering echoes of that class. And for him, and for a lot of people like him, it is, Brexit is an unexpected way to reassert themselves on the world stage, but also to protect their class and 
the people who make money. You know, it's it, it, there's a lot of they adjusted very quickly. Uh, mm. The the kind of the ruling classes in the UK, they adjusted very very quickly. I mean, you remember um, Theresa May was uh, Remain, um, yeah. Hammond was Remain. All of them, a lot of them, the Tory grandees were all Remain. The minute the Brexit vote happens, opportunity arises, and suddenly they're all like the hardest hard Brexit guys you've ever met in your life, you know. Uh, and it's that sense of these politics. Like, I think it's a real wake up call for the UK as well. I think they're kind of still people are still trying to get their heads around it. People regret. That, people regret, don't they? There's instant regret. Um, oh yeah, for for voting leave, and particularly yeah. like when you have. But when you have like Boris, or not even Boris Johnson, yeah, when you have someone like Nigel Farage being given so much airtime, not even that he was given airtime, but he was pontificating uh, uh, any, anything he said wasn't fact. Like he was just making things up as he went along. Yeah, I mean, but he's he's got a great act, uh, Nigel Farage, and he's taking that act on the road now. He's he's kind of relocating to the US because he sees a lot better, it's a better market for what he sells. You know? It's ridiculous. Yeah, but he's, but again, part of the problem is as well, like, you know, have I got news for you? You know, these are the guys, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson, Nigel, they're all, they all graduated through. Have I got news for you? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to, you know, trick these guys. Boris Johnson became this, nationally loved, charismatic, Asher isn't he great uh, character. The same with Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage. Farage, when you drill down into what, Farage recently tweeted uh, on Remembrance Day uh, in, about you know, the sacrifice of British soldiers in, in two world wars. Two weeks beforehand, he was speaking at a far-right rally in Germany, neo-Nazis. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Christ. You know, so it's, <laughs> That's what you're dealing with, and that's what the—that's what—that's what the UK and the US is trying to come to terms with at the moment. Like it's all politics has become with between uh, Farage, Boris Johnson, and Trump. It's all parody now. It's. I mean, you could say it's the, it's the age of easy answers uh, and the dumbing down. We finally reached the bottom, really. Mm. Well, hopefully, we've reached the bottom. There may be some way to go yet, but yeah, I mean. It's, it's, it's lowest common denominator stuff. It's telling people what they want to hear. It's giving them easy answers. It's saying, listen, your life may be crap and you haven't succeeded and you feel worthless and all that kind of stuff. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's the fault of the others. Mm. It's the fault of immigrants. It's the fault of the Jews. It's the fault of the Irish. I mean, if you've been looking at the Daily Mail and the Sun this week, they've been going absolutely ballistic with Ireland. No, I was going to say yeah. about Ireland. Where, where, where do you think we stand with all this? Especially well, with, with, with the Daily Mail and, and the Sun going after our T-shirt. Well, they're, they're, looking, they're, looking, they're looking for scapegoats now. I mean, they're, they're looking for, you know, they, they've, already, listen, they've already been calling their own moderate Tory MPs who voice concerns about Brexit. They call them traitors and saboteurs. <laughs> High court judges, you know, traitors to you. So, they, they're looking around for people to blame. Um, it seems to be not going very well for them. Uh, and they're, they're looking for people to blame. Like, the positions at Leo Varadkar, like, first of all, 
it's hilarious to me that the the Sun and the Daily Mail are are, are casting Leo Varadkar as some sort of cross between Jerry Adams and Shea Guevara. <laughs> <laughs> it's so this, true, yeah. This is Leo Varadkar we're talking about here. He would, he would love to be called the Prime Minister instead of Taoiseach. Exactly. Who wore a poppy in the Doyle not so long ago. Leo Varadkar is not going to be, you know, issuing orders to start digging up the guns, lads, because we're going, <laughs> we're going to order tomorrow. Uh, it's, it, that's how nutty it's after getting, you know. And <laughs> what, they're, what they're looking for is scapegoats, people to blame, people to be angry against. Because the interesting thing from, you know, if you think in three years' time, if, the, if they do leave the EU, uh, and, you know, there's still questions about whether they will or not, if they do, who are they? When things go wrong and they no longer have the European Union to blame, who are they going to blame? When you say if, Joe, how will they not leave now? Well, I, it's an, I, you know, if you make predictions, you you make God laugh. But um, <laughs> I I fully I was shocked when I woke up. I, I had two shocking mornings last year in London. I woke up and Brexit had happened, and I woke up my wife and said, "You're not going to bloody believe this." And then Trump happened, right? So I'm maybe not the best uh, prognosticator in the world, but it's, listen, look, look at this scenario. Theresa May is like everybody. Her own, her own party probably hate her more than Labour do or the, or the voting public. Let's say the Tory government goes under. Let's say the DUP pulls some sort of mad stunt or get you know, hacked off about the fact that they're not sending them enough boxes of flags or something like that. <laughs> uh, then, okay, then there's a general election. Could happen. Then Labour could get in. Jeremy Corbyn, right? Who knows what Labour wants or what they're... Jeremy Corbyn is probably leave. He's probably leave. He's, he's, he's actually been against the EU since the 70s. Mm. But let's say the, the, the sane wing of the Labour Party take over, the old Blairites... There could be people. It could be said we need now that we know what the deal is. Now that we know what's going to happen, how things are going to play out, we need a referendum to say, are we happy with this? There could be a second referendum. It's possible. It's not highly likely at the moment. Politics is so volatile at the moment that you you wouldn't you know you wouldn't rule it out. Is I, that is that only possible if if they had to go to another general election and Labour took over? Yeah, probably, yeah. I mean, because there's no way that, that any, Tory, <laughs> any Tory leader that stood up tomorrow and said we're going to have a second, um, a second referendum would probably be, you know, it'd be like a Michael Collins situation. This morning <laughs> I signed my own debt warrant. So, like, you know, there'd be snipers uh, popping up all over the place. But it's, it's possible. I mean, if, if Brexit, if a leave vote is possible then a second referendum is possible. I, I would imagine in any situation, though, especially if, if it's a no-deal situation, um, not to go all Noel Edmonds on this, but like if it's a no-deal situation, <laughs> then in my, in, in my head, the only logical thing for them to do is to, hold, is to go all Lisbon Treaty on it and hold a second referendum because it, 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 that is a complete unknown. That is... It almost flies in the face of all, well, not that all the reasons they ever gave for voting pro-Brexit were, were legit anyway. But, like, it, it just leaves so many question marks. I don't see how the general public could be in any way, shape or form comfortable with it. Like, Yeah, well, you, you know, you, 
you guys and, and I am, we're sitting a couple of hundred miles away from an intractable, unsolvable problem. Yeah. The border, Northern Ireland. Like, what they're trying to, what the British are trying to say is it's going to be some sort of magical uh, unicorn run, <laughs> IT guy set up kind of where, you know, we'll have microchips and trucks and there won't be a hard border. That's, then you have the DUP who, if they could, would actually mine the border and, uh, you know, so, <laughs> and you have the EU saying there cannot be a hard border. We will, because they're signatories to the Good Friday Agreement. The European yeah. Union signatories, they have to, they're by law have to protect the Good Friday Agreement, mm. which doesn't allow for a hard border. So that's one, just one problem. You know, the, like the other, one of the other problems is as well, there are already the agriculture in, in uh, industry sector in the UK is suffering badly already. There's fruit rotting in the fields over there because the people who would normally come and pick it have not come and picked it. There were people from Eastern Europe, from the poorer regions, the fringes of Europe. This week, the Home Office in the UK said that, you know, they have to register and process something like uh, three and a half million uh, EU citizens living in the UK. They have to register and process all of them. Unfortunately, they don't have enough staff. So what they're going to have to do is to hire Polish staff uh, and French staff, <laughs> Jesus and staff to come in and you know, <laughs> register the foreigners. You know, the NHS, the NHS and some NHS hospitals in, in the UK, it's 70% uh, non-nationals working in the hospitals. Well, what happens to them? You know, it, it's, it's a massive, massive, massive problem for them. And... If you talk to Brexit Brexiteers and you say, well, what's the upside? They can't give you any concrete answers. It's, mm. well, we get our sovereignty back. You, you are already a sovereign country. Yeah. You're a member of the union. You're not a member of, uh, you know, some sort of super state. They always talk about the European Union super state as if Brussels is some, you know, full of, you know, m uh, mad evil geniuses that know how to run everything, you know, when all the evidence we have is quite the opposite, you know? Um, Ireland alone could scupper the whole thing, could block talks. Uh, they'll drag on till March, and then you're staring down the barrel. What, 420 days until yeah. Brexit at the moment? You know? uh, yeah, I, I was going to say about Ireland, because obviously, you know, we, we play a key part in it. For a rainy little rock in the Atlantic, we tend to yield a bit more power than some think we should. But, like, whatever about the impacts over there, the potential impacts here are also huge beyond my comprehension anyway so uh, Ireland could run this thing asunder I suppose and that would well, lead to even more questions the biggest I tweeted uh, around a few months ago and it's the biggest kind of response or number of RTs I've ever got in my life and I said I compared it to like watching watching Brexit from an Irish perspective is like watching your neighbour torch their house and then realise your own roof is patched you know <laughs> It's, it's, we're kind of, we are on inextricably bound up with what happens to the UK. Now, we're not as, as, as linked to them in terms of trade, in terms of, you know, what we, uh, what we get from them, what we, we sell to them as we used to be. We've diversified a lot. But it is potentially huge, huge problem. Quite apart from what happens in the, in the North, it's a potentially a huge, massive, massive problem for us. But then it could also bring, huge, huge opportunities. I always say, we forget, we will be the only English-speaking nation in the European Union. And if you think about that, 
if you're an American technology company and you're looking to invest here, highly educated workforce, English speaking, good links now to the UK or to, to the rest of Europe. You know, we have these new undersea uh, cables that link us, that have made us very, very highly connected. There's one in Cork, came ashore in Cork a couple of years ago, uh, or last year, called the Hibernia Express undersea cable, which links us in, in the closest possible way to the, to the US in terms of like, you know, data transfer, all that kind of stuff. We potentially could, if, if it's played right, we could, we could come off as massive beneficiaries in this. But again, that would depend on a lot of our problems that we have currently here, not least the housing crisis being yeah. solved. You know, because it, it, let's say the European banking agency that was supposed to come to Dublin, that would have brought at least a thousand uh, staff to Dublin practically overnight. Where would they have all stayed? Yeah, know? where they've lived. Because yeah. that's one of Google's biggest complaints is that they can't uh, even house their some of their staff in, in, yeah. in Bald's Bridge. Yeah. Oh, listen, we've got Apple in Cork. Apple have been here since 1979. They've been expanding rapidly in the past few years. They, I think they have like 1,500, 2,000 people working in Cork. Mm. They, I know somebody who's working there. If, if you're in Apple and you say, listen, I've, I've got a... Because the housing crisis is pretty bad in Cork as well. If you say to your line manager in Apple, I've got a place I need to see. It's a possible apartment I can move into. They'll give you time off from work to go and see it. Wow. Did, did, that, that did, fast. Did the um, did the Brexit vote in the six counties surprise you at all, Joe? Um, not really, because like they know uh, the EU is very very important for them, and if they're cut off, if they are, are part of a Brexit UK, they're cut off from the south, and there has been a you know a big big increase in cross border trade, cross border cooperation, investment, all that kind of stuff. They know they're cut off from the south of Ireland. They know that they're cut off by the sea from the mainland, as they would call it. They're in a very, very yeah. A lot of the voters in Northern Ireland, whatever national, you know, Republican Unionist, they realise that the North has been doing very well since Good Friday agreements. It's it's done very well in terms of investment and cross-border trade with the South. They mostly realise that Brexit is a a real disaster for whatever about in the South, it's a terrible disaster for them. The only problem is Northern Ireland politics has te um, tended to be dominated, especially in recent years, by what political scientists call nutcases. Uh, so it's, you know, the DUP is not interested in, in economics, really. What they're interested in is what colour uh, cloth flies over Belfast City Hall. Yeah. You know, they're, they're flag obsessed, basically. Mm. Now, if Leo Varadkar agreed to give every single unionist in the north of Ireland 10 union flags, that would be a start. Just give them so many flags that they don't, they're not really that obsessed. But, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it, I think it would be great if, if the Republic, you know, if the government of the Republic could say, listen, we don't care what colour flag flies over Belfast City Hall. We want an island of peace and prosperity. And we have said this already in many ways through the Good Friday Agreement, we don't care, you know, about flags. We just want peace and prosperity on this island. Join us or work with us, not necessarily join us, work with us. And, you know, let's, let's, let's come up with some sort of way of doing this. The DUP has no interest in that. Do you, no think, 
Do you think that that like parties in in uh, Dollar and do care about the North? Like Ooh. I mean, Fianna Gael and and Fianna Fáil. I I particularly talking about Fianna Fáil, considering they call themselves the Republican Party. Well, I think Fianna Gael's subheading is the United Ireland Party or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Drag that out of somewhere. But you never uh, hear you never hear them you never hear them at all talking about it. You only hear, ever hear them say now from my from my point of view looking in at the whole stalemate instalment at the moment, um and I BBC did a newsline did a, a little piece and they spoke to kind of uh unionist areas kind of early twenties. And they they do want equality, so you can nearly see them turning on their own people if they don't. People their yeah. age don't get the equality that they're looking for. It's it's just, it's it's fascinating because it's the same as in the UK. There's a generational sh- a divide and a generational shift. You would think that people in their twenties in, in Northern Ireland, unless they're living in really really hardline areas, that they do care more about jobs, employment, security, peace, prosperity then they care about what colour flag flies at the end of their street, you know? Yeah. It's the same in the UK. I mean, you know, Brexit was massively weighted, the, the Levo was massively weighted towards older older people, older voters. So, and then you have the demographic population shifts in the North. And that's always been one of the great kind of like uh, what-ifs or could-happens is that, you know, nationalist populations, or at least Republican-leaning, or, you know, United Ireland-leaning populations are growing quicker than the opposite, the other the other sides, you know? Um, so, like, it would be a great, great irony if this whole, uh, you know, make Britain great again uh, kind of Brexit kind of push ended up in ultimately delivering a United Ireland or a semi-United Ireland or a detached a further detached Northern Ireland from the UK. But I can tell you one thing from living and working in London and working in the media and working in different areas, at best, they have the vaguest idea about Northern Ireland and a similarly vague idea about the South. They, the general people do not care about Northern Ireland over there. It might as well be Narnia for a lot of people. Jesus, you know, that's staggering. That, yeah. They, but a lot of them don't even know. I mean, I, was taught, I had a conversation with a, uh, a young English guy in uh, in a pub. Again, I don't spend a lot of time in the pub. In <laughs> the way I'm talking to you today, it's, it sounds like I'm in the pub all the time. But he was saying, like, you know, oh, isn't it terrible if we vote leave? We'll, you know, the Scots will will break off from us, and we, they'll break the union, and the Welsh might start thinking about breaking away from us as well. And I said, yeah, and, and of course, Northern Ireland. And he went. No, Northern Ireland is that ours? <laughs> Jesus, you know, and it, like I, you may think I'm exaggerating. My they, God, they don't know or care. They're they're being forced, and it's the same to go going with the south. And you've seen it this week in the British media. They have a very very vague idea of of who we are and what we are. Um, there's the piece in the British newspaper saying that Ireland has a, an unstable government at the moment. When you know, if you look at it, we have no real effective opposition and practically a national government of Fianna Fáil, yeah. Fianna Gael, cooperating together to push through the same program. You know, it's, we couldn't have a more stable government at the moment. You know, it's, but in their, in their eyes, it's a, it's, a, it's a banana republic. It's a tin pot, jumped up, former Connolly uh, that has 
nice mountains and beaches and golf courses and you know you try and tell people in England that you know we have a, a, a big technology sector here that Dublin's a real center for startups and all that kind of stuff mm. that Facebook are here that Twitter are here all this kind of stuff and they'll look at you like uh, are you joking me you know it is like without being too too far gone and it, it is you know, they do think there are cows wandering down the main street. Jesus know? Christ. Yeah. They, Unless like, they, if they visited Dublin, and a lot of them do, they kind of, they'd say, actually, I was in Dublin, and I was amazed. You've got traffic lights and everything. <laughs> <laughs> but it's gas, because I think, I would not be surprised if Theresa May was in a position or it turned out that Brexit was a total disaster, and she's like, she says to Leo, right, Leo, you can actually have the six counties back. I wouldn't be surprised if Leo says, ah, no, no, you keep them. Well, th then you get into who pays for it because Northern Ireland is a massive, massive drain on the, on the British Exchequer, you know, huge, huge subsidies, which, again, most English people don't know about, but they are starting to find out about it. Um, the piece in the Daily Mail uh, about Ireland, Leo Varadkar, you know, all this kind of stuff, if you look at the comments section underneath, it's hilarious because there are, you know, it mentions the fact that, you know, Britain gives massive subsidies to, to the north of Ireland. If you look at the comments section under, underneath, it's all these, you know, rabid Daily Mail readers calling for reunification of Ireland or give it back to them. We don't want it. We don't need Northern Ireland. All this kind of stuff, you know. It's making Brexit is breaking up. It's breaking apart the traditional. It's you know, uh, kind of camps and traditional kind of assumptions about British and Irish politics. And that's why I am utterly fascinated with the whole process. Do you think it's more likely then, Joe, for the United Ireland? I think it's a, it's a historical inevitability, to be honest with you. Um, it's going to happen because it has to happen. It's an unnatural state at the moment. And listen, I'm, I'm not saying this as some mad, you know, rahead or anything <laughs> like that. Michael Collins' country there, Joe. Yeah, well, yeah, but I'm sitting, I'm, I'm, taught, I'm sitting underneath a portrait of General Michael Collins as we speak. <laughs> my kitchen, in my kitchen, uh, yeah, on my kitchen wall. Fueling the stereotype, I love it. Oh yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's you know, it does seem to be a historical inevitability. It's and it gets it gets closer the the more Brexit shakes up everything in the UK and creates these new false lines and forces people to take sides and make choices. Like the DUP will not be thanked in, in years to come by their voters, by the people who trust them, because they are sabotaging the peace and prosperity, and they know they're doing it. But they're didn't... sabotaging the peace and prosperity of their people for a ideological reasons, for flags. But That's, didn't they put out an ad in the Metro in Dublin or in London worth, uh, I read an article Fintan O'Toole wrote and basically saying that they spent millions on this, uh, art, um, it was a one page ad about voting to leave and yeah. the, the circulation went all over London in one day and apparently it cost millions. Evening Standard, um, yeah actually there's an interesting story and we probably don't have time to go into it here, but there's an interesting story about where the money for that came from and why it was routed through the DUP. Uh, and you know, a basic question 
It's like, why was the DUP taking out full-page ads in the Evening Standard in London, you know, when more, where most people have never heard of the DUP, you know. Mm. It's, there's whole, it's coming out this week now, there's been, actually an Irish journalist, uh, Ankan Wallader, has been doing great work in The Guardian about looking at uh, finance, money, influence uh, behind the Leave campaign. And there's a lot of ties, it echoes very closely with what's been going on, what, what went on in the US with, uh, with the Trump campaign, with Facebook ads, with, you know, Twitter bots, with social media, uh, all this kind of stuff. I mean, there's some dark, there are some dark forces at work in the world, you know. Are we, just, not, are we just blaming the Russians for all of it then? Or? Well, yeah, I know, it does become a cliche that it's all the fault of the Russians. <laughs> You know, it's uh, we, we could also. Um, I'm not going to blame the Kilkenny hurlers either. <laughs> you know, there's definitely dark forces at work. You know, and um, the it's yeah. It, I mean, it, it's fascinating in an interconnected world that was supposed to make us all smarter. It just seems to have made us all dumber. You know, um, it's people are easily fooled. You know, um, and the Brexit thing. I mean. Or, they, or it was just old-fashioned propaganda as well. The big bendy red bus, which I yeah. saw dro- driving through London. You know, we'll give thirty-five million a week to the uh, to the NHS. It's they, had no, they had no intention of ever doing that, and it was all made-up money anyway. I mean, it was, but that one was particularly insidious because that really played to the fears of older people. Because mm. the NHS is like a sacred institution; it's the closest thing to the Catholic Church that the the, the English have. <laughs> They worship it, they, and it is a fantastic system. It's like I experienced it for four years, and it is incredible still. I mean, it, it really it makes the Irish health system look like two lads in a shed with hacksaws. Like, you Jeez. Know. And it, would that work in Ireland, and how would it work? Uh, to, to fool people that way, or, or the NHS? <laughs> no, the NHS. <laughs> well, you know, here's a funny thing. Um, we pay more in tax per head for our health system than the British do for the NHS. Ah, yeah, wow. that's depressing. Yeah. So um, there's something going wrong somewhere. Um, but, you know, it's... But it's... That, that, that big red bus with the 35 million a week, that was one of the grand political lies of our lifetime. Yeah. And it fooled a lot, a lot of people. We, um... Like, like uh, I just had to look at the clock and realise we spent 45 minutes talking about Brexit. And I'm sitting here and I'm <laughs> like, oh, shit, right, okay. Um, but, like... <laughs> I, I suppose that gives it, it, it certainly puts into perspective the scale of it, though, because we're not even scratching the surface. We're really just kind of, you know, talking about ideas and talking about what ifs and maybes and all that kind of thing. But I, I suppose look, you, you've been around the block, Joe. You, you've reported on some massive stories, and I include Saipan 2002 in that. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Great Civil War. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, 2016 has gone to go down as one of the most bizarre 17. and no 16 that's when the votes were too. oh sorry yeah um in terms of brexit and then you, you mentioned it earlier as well across the atlantic trump like and there were two that that everybody thought were impossible nobody seeing it coming mm. and, and yeah here we are like yeah it's it's yeah it's scary but it's also it's fascinating it's car crash you know you just can't take your eyes off what's happening and mm. You wonder how things are going to turn out. Will Will Trump make it to the, the full four-year term? You know, I didn't think, I thought there wasn't a chance in the hell he'd get elected, especially after the Axis Hollywood tape came out, like, uh, a week before the election. I thought that was the end for him. Yeah. You know? um, 
But there now he's on TV last night uh, telling people in Alabama to vote for an alleged pedophile. You know, so it, it's that the whole Trump thing is crazy. It's like the U.S. has lost its damn mind, basically. Yeah. You know, um, I I'm fascinated by it, but I also kind of it, it really kind of makes me kind of sick to my stomach as well that a country like the U.S. could could elect a man like him. You know, how's he not I, been impeached yet? Well, you know, <clears throat> give it time. Those things take a while. Uh, if you listen to what people are saying about the Mueller investigation. Uh, he's doing it like a classic uh, mafia investigation where you kind of go after the kind of the guys lower down on the rings, rungs. You get them to roll over. Then you get the next guy to roll over and you get the next guy to roll over until you get the, the Al Capone figure at the top, you know. Um, if you believe what people are saying, then there's a lot of stuff. The Mueller investigation is going to be uh, incredibly explosive. But the problem there is if the Republican Party in the U.S., stick by Trump no matter what, they can either delay and block or just completely dismiss. You know, it's the, the U.S. system wasn't set up for, uh, for a, an individual uh, and a movement and a group of people, because it's the people around Trump as well. It wasn't set up to deal with those kind of... They never really envisaged out-and-out conmen and yeah. liars and the worst people in the world they never envisage them getting into the white house where were we guilty of underestimating that entire you know make america great again movement maga and all that like were we guilty of underestimating it from kind of air armchair back then and are we still a little bit guilty of underestimating just how much they're willing to put behind trump in terms of keeping them in power oh the gop would would keep Satan himself in power if they thought they could get tax cuts for the rich. So that's not surprising. What's surprising is 60, I think it was 60 million people voted for Trump. Like, the thing is, he's not even a good con man. He's yeah. the most obvious con man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> you know, he, he's not, it's, you'd, you'd be ashamed if you voted for Trump because you got taken by the most obvious, ridiculous, transparent con man that's ever been in politics. You know, Richard Nixon was a genius, you know, and he was, he was a con man, dangerous, totally immoral. But he was, you know, he managed to dress himself up and present himself as, as this statesman, you know. Trump is just, from, like, Trump has never stopped telling us what he is. That's the funny thing. From the moment he came out and he said that uh, John McCain wasn't a war hero because he got captured, in any other year or election, that would have been the end of him. Yeah. He mimicked a disabled reporter on national TV. In any other year, any other election, that would have been the end of him. He got caught bragging on tape about sexually assaulting women. Again, any other year, any other election, that would have finished him. But 60 million people still voted for him. And that's the scariest thing, that these people are so detached from reality and angry and deranged and racist in, some, in many respects are just plain crazy that they'd actually go out and vote for this guy, knowing full well what, what he is and who he was. It's, yeah, like, I, I still kind of struggle to comprehend it. And I remember at the time, and, like, kind of 
to, to peel back the curtain for people who regularly listen to us, me and Graham had an ongoing thing where I was claiming to be a Trump supporter for, you know, antagonising sake. But, I mean, even when he got in, even I was kind of a bit like, okay, shit, right, uh, this is real now. Like, I, I never believed that about building the wall. I never believed any of that kind of stuff was going to. But at the same time, I'm amazed that what has happened, and it's hard to wrap my head around like how insidious the entire situation is over there at the moment like joe do you think if bernie sanders had a story he'd be the president now that's the great what if isn't it yeah i don't i don't know i wouldn't claim to know enough as enough about american politics to say he would have i think hillary was the wrong candidate you know and that's with the benefit of hindsight yeah she was just the wrong candidate i was surprised there's a guy called martin o'malley Mm. Uh, who's Irish-American from Baltimore, uh, and he was the other candidate besides Sanders. I thought he would have made a great candidate altogether because he would have represented kind of a new generation. He's young enough, I think he's like in his late 40s. He's had a very good track record in Baltimore. He may run again, though. I thought Hillary Sanders, I don't know. Um, I don't know what he have won. Uh, he would have been... A very easy target for the Fox News uh, and and the like, um, but I mean, that's got to be the biggest Hillary. Like how how she didn't win that. And their their campaign, the Democratic campaign, was terrible. Trump's was brilliantly mad and populist and mm. gay. Like, this whole wall thing. They're never going to build a wall. No. That's all. Yes. Yeah. But but that's what people want to hear. Easy answers. You're worried, you see too many brown faces around when you go to the supermarket. Don't worry, we'll build a wall. You won't see any more brown faces. <laughs> it's you know, ridiculous. It, it's, yeah, but it's what people want, easy answers, you know? Um, I, 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 I don't think Sanders would have won. Um, I don't think so. But it would have been fascinating to see him go up against Trump because I think Hillary didn't go hard enough against Trump. I think she tried, but I think she did it really badly. And I think the primaries as well. Jeb Bush was the only guy who said, like, people laughed at Jeb, Jeb Bush, low energy, all that kind of stuff. But Jeb Bush stood up on the stage in one of the debates and said, you, if you vote Trump, if you elect pre- uh, Trump president, he's going to be the president of chaos. Mm. And he's right. He was right. Yeah, he is the president of the chaos at the moment. Yeah. Like, as somebody who, who works in the media and has done now for a long time, Joe, when you hear... Or when you see how Trump has managed to manipulate the agenda and the term fake news, which, you know, didn't really register on people's radar up until Trump came along. Is that a source of frustration for you? Were you like, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, definitely, because I've seen people in Ireland on social media in Ireland talk about the MSM, the mainstream media and all this kind of stuff. And RT is lying to us and they have an agenda and all that. Kind of, yeah. You know, it's like. Media organisations do have biases, right? And they do, in, in Ireland and in the UK and in many places, they tend to be staffed by people from the same class, uh, from the same background, educational, that kind of stuff. But this thing of like that, you know, they sit down in RTE or the Irish Times or anywhere else, or NBC or MSN, you know, any of those, that they sit down on a Monday morning and say, right, how can we lie to the public this week, is bananas, you know? It's just crazy. But people in Ireland, not just in, in the US, they're prepared to believe that. They're prepared to believe that, you know, it's all lies. You can't believe anything. It's 
you know, they're hopelessly biased. They're, they've got an agenda to push. They're all behind Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil in power. They're all behind Fianna Fáil or they're all raving lefties or they're all, you know, it's not like if there's 10, like just taking RTE as an example, if there's like, say, 5,000 people working in RTE or 2,000 or whoever, it's going to be like any other organization. There's going to be liberals, lefties, right wingers, you name it. You know, it's and you can't coordinate you can't get in the RT newsroom 250 people. You can't say to them, right, guys, keep this between yourselves, but we're going to the light, going to lie to the public about this. You know? It, it's beyond belief to me. And it's, it's, the, it's the, the most insidious trick that Trump is able to pull off. Once you can convince people that they can't trust anything, that they can't trust newspapers, you know, media organizations they can't trust facts that you can do anything yeah you can literally do anything and i suppose that's where like the the exact the classic examples of state-run media and i mean even and again to bring up the big bad wolf of russia but you look at kind of the examples of you know attacks on journalists over there and how putin dominates the media and that kind of thing like it's they're almost polar opposites and yet there's so many similarities in the sense of you have this you know the the leader of the country, and they're they're basically spoon feeding the public this narrative that they want them to take in, and you kind of have to sit there and say, well, what to what end is this going to ha- or to what end is this going to going to stop? Like, can it stop? Yeah, you have to trust facts. You know, you have to trust facts, and you have to take it on trust that newspapers may be presenting news with a certain bias. There may be a certain, there may be agendas going on, you know, in the way they operate, but they're not boldly lying to you, unless it's the Daily Mail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the Daily Mail, the the, the comment section of Daily Mail is that guilty pleasure, I think, for a lot of people. Uh, So not not much of a pleasure to me. It's, um, some of the things I remember seeing one before actually I think it was actually the comedian Dave Gorman um, might have put it up on Twitter and that's how I seen it but it was um, it was a report of I think it was actually back London 2012 around the Olympics and they there was a, a story about the Union Jack flags that were being made or being made in Taiwan or something like that and uh, there was one comment on Twitter saying, my grandfather didn't fight and die in both world wars, so yeah, our flags yeah. could be made abroad. And it's just like, come on, come man, on. Come on. Uh, you know, I, I always say that my, my grandfather burnt out a British Army barracks in 1921, actually. He was smoking in bed. <laughs> Sorry, smoking in bed? Yeah, that's just, that's just a little, little family joke. Awesome. <laughs> There must be some cork stories there that we'll get to another time, maybe. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. The next time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like we we almost uh, hijacked the hour with Brexit, but then again, it's it's just it's so it's deep. It's so interesting. It's so yeah. deep that you can't not like once you go into that wormhole, man. It's just. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it'll be fascinating. I mean, it'll be fascinating to see. I'll be watching it here from my underground bunker, stacked with, <laughs> with shotguns. Uh, waiting to see what happens because it's it is it's it's the biggest political event probably of our lives our lifetime so it'll be yeah. fascinating to see what happens are you glad you're home now joe or 
Yeah, happy to be home. Yeah, happy to be back in Cork after 30 years. Um, left in 1989 uh, and just came back uh, six, seven months ago. So, uh, wow, yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah, good to be back. I miss Dublin. Great town. Uh, tough to live in at the moment, but uh, it's a fantastic town. Lovely. Love it, love it. And so what comes next for you then? Obviously, people can can, can see your stuff in, in the papers and that, but any plans for you coming up? Uh, well, I did a two-part doc for RT in September on the Rich List, uh, Ireland's Rich List. So. Yeah, it was very good. I watched it. Oh, cheers, yeah. yeah. Um, so I love to see, you know, we're, we're kind of getting into that, that weird Irish, uh, that period in Ireland it normally starts on December 1st, where nobody gets back to you about anything. You're on a go slow for the month of December. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we, yeah we'll talk about it in the new year. And you're going, it's the 2nd of December. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell me you're going to the pub at 2 o'clock already. <laughs> so we'll have to see. And like, <laughs> probably nothing's going to happen until the new year now, but we'll see what happens then. Brilliant, brilliant. And if people want to learn more from you or whatever, Joe, where can, where can they find you? Uh, Twitter at Joseph O'Shea with an F. So J O J O S E F O'Shea. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. Joe, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, man. Really appreciate your time. Cheers. And, um, Thanks, Joe. Really interesting conversation. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to sleep tonight now with all that going on my head, but sure, look. <laughs> ah, don't worry about it. It'll all be fine in the end. It'll be grand. <laughs> Joe O'Shea, thanks to me, man. Thanks, it's been Joe. a pleasure. Thanks, bye. All bye the best. Joe O'Shea. Yeah. Lovely bloke. Absolutely. Um, over three decades of broadcasting and writing and all those other things, man. Now he's got the giggles for some reason. <laughs> sorry, sorry. You're doing a little parp, yeah? No, it's the, my moustache hair is just. It's tickling your nose, it's isn't tickling it? tickling my nose. <laughs> I'm going to probably trim it. I wouldn't mind because when I was looking at you, it was kind of like you were like. like it was almost <laughs> like your nose was kind of twitching yeah. to try and. But I, d- okay. I do think it's been nostril hair, but I've got one of those. You got your hair cut. I did, yeah. It's lovely. Thanks very much. Thanks. Um, Jay Brophy, men's hair cut, styling yeah. a profile and like Ric Flair. That's Woo! He's our exclusive barber. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say to you? Yeah, no, I uh, it was always nostril hair and I got one of those nostril hair removers. Yeah. And it's gone grand. But now my moustache like curls up. Mm. Right, right under the nostril. Yeah, I've noticed. Yeah, it's a pain in the house. So I'm gonna start trimming. Trimming it a bit better. Yeah. yeah, I like how we went from um, saying how great Joe was and and thanking him <laughs> for his time to telling about your nostril hair. Sorry, I'm sorry, not sure. Joe. I'm not sure if Joe was ever being quite put in that sort of situation <laughs> no, before. But I'm uh, sorry, I'm so sorry. Anywho, um, anyhow, I enjoyed that chat. Yeah, enjoyed that. Very chat. good. Um, but yeah, Decent, Marlo, man. get well soon. Thank you. <laughs> or, uh, I or, might be well. Or, you know, you know, I hope they ever <laughs> bloody go ahead and do this surgery for you. People, people that, 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 that know me will probably like, when they're listening to this. Be like, what? 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 He's had it and all. Hopefully. Yeah. We're covering all the bases, lads. That's yeah, all we're doing. Peeling back to court. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, look, that's it for WTS126. Jump on the gun. Jump on the gun. You can catch us on I'll go for it. Uh, Facebook dot com forward slash WTS pod Ireland you can go to Twitter at WTS pod you can search on all the uh, podcast apps Stitcher iTunes Podcast Republic um, Podbean and just put in WTS pod and you'll get us there tremendous was that a 10 out of 10 no because you didn't do it if it's Patrick Castleby oh no I didn't know that was part of my part <laughs> I didn't know that was part of me. The outro is the outro. you got to cover all the bases, man. I got 9 out of 10 this week. I'm probably down to 8 yeah, out of 10. No, yeah, you, you slipped a little bit this. But look, man, it's you're getting better. 
there was a little bit of hesitation on the facebook.com forward slash WTS pod. <laughs> the Ireland part. Yeah, because you just kind of left it hanging and I was looking and I was going, don't, don't do it, Graham. Don't move on, please. I'm sorry. And you never plugged the website. <sighs> WTSpod.com, ladies and gentlemen. Seven out of ten. Yeah. Look, we'll put it down to the nerves ahead of your big up. <laughs> yeah. Or I mean, after your big up. After your... <laughs> <laughs> It, oh, we should well. do a podcast from the hospital yeah man we'll do the 600 from the hospital yes do I mean we would have done the 600 oh uh, yeah yeah that's how we did it Jesus <laughs> right let's go yeah yeah look all those things that Marlo said and check out all previous 125 episodes chapters podcasts whatever you want to call them uh, previous to this and um, yeah it's patrickhassel.com don't forget to go there and check out their offers but Mero until next week clear eyes full hearts and lose look too sweet <laughs>